Hello, everybody. This is Sarah Longwell. I am joined today with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, and we are talking about A French Village, Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4. This is Season 2 of our French Village podcast, because as you know, we got renewed by ourselves. And, uh, and here we are. Ben, great to see you. Great to see you. And uh, I just want to say... Uh, uh, what a what a joy uh, this pair of episodes was. We had uh, and and we had uh, a, a heart rending uh, unwanted pregnancy situation leading to a botched self inflicted abortion. We had uh, uh, a, a major character rising to the occasion of the Nazi invasion of France by. Uh, spewing anti-Semitic bile because she lost a cake competition. Um, and we had the communists deciding it is time to start killing some Germans and immediately getting involved in internecine uh, left uh, battles with each other. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I signed up for this podcast for. Um, uh I'm just thrilled by these pair of episodes. Oh, I'm so glad. I also, it you really do just jump right into like hitting the top plot points. Like uh, you are a, you're a spoiler machine at the top of the episode. No build up or anything. Uh, you know, I'm assuming people listen to this <laughs> show having already watched the podcast, uh, the, the, listen to this podcast, having watched the the, the show. So I was just kind of giving the headlines. <laughs> you know, that's not true, though, that we have these people who, who are just listening to the podcast. That's true. Although I, I got to say to everyone who's doing that, <laughs> I don't understand you. <laughs> like, like, there's the show. That's the this is the the super text, you know, the footnotes. You should actually read the text. Yeah. I agree. I agree people should watch the show, but I appreciate if you're here anyway. Um, so as Ben said, these were two uh, great episodes. Um, the particularly for me, the, the, the first one uh, of the, of the two in which, uh, which, which centers around um, it's a very Catholic episode, I guess I would say um, lots of scenes in the church. Uh, and, uh, and it really is focused on, on Lucienne and, and her pregnancy um, but it also, um, we're really picking up on this storyline, um, and I, I kind of want to start here, uh, with the communists have kind of brought in a rigor, ringer, uh, who's going to lead them in their mission to kill the kraut, because our, our, sm go ahead. And he's like 12 years old. Yeah, and he shows up and he's just, just a kid, just a little kid, fresh-faced, um, but, but resolute, I would say, um, ready to kind of stiffen the spines of everybody else. Cause you can tell this group is not wild about the idea of killing, um, German police officers. And one of the things that I like about this episode and the way that they're trying, as they try to figure this out, right. And they're basically on a stakeout, right. They're trying to, they're trying to plan their mission. And it actually is about the intricacies of, if you're going to do this thing, you're going to go shoot um, an officer, <laughs> you want to get away. And so the whole the whole thing kind of centers around them trying to figure out how if they do this thing, they would they would get away with doing it. And they would, you know, where would they park the car? What would their cover story be? Um, and you can just see how how scared 
Marcel is really, um, and I think to a lesser degree Suzanne, about this idea of both taking a life and also being able to do it and and not die themselves as well, right? There's a lot of conversation about where are the where are the German soldiers going to be, and and because there's like a little the, the interesting disconnect for me is the is between the uh, the what the what the communist sort of officials want, which is you know how can you how can you make the German officers feel unsafe everywhere they go, um, right? So they have a they want to be terrorists. And the people that they're enlisting to terrorism are kind of like, they don't really want to hurt anybody. Um, and they certainly don't seem to want to die themselves. Yeah. So I, first of all, this is the problem of resistance in nearly all uh, of, of, at least of Western Europe. So in Eastern Europe, the... Nazi occupation was so genocidal towards Slavs as well as toward Jews that there, you know, you didn't really have that much choice. Um, but um, in Western Europe, there was this option of trying to get by under Nazi occupation. And you can see that in uh, in the day-to-day -day interaction here uh, you know, we're a year into the occupation and the town is functioning. You know, it's not functioning super well. It's not um, it's not thriving by any means. There's malnutrition. There's but, you know, day to day people wake up. They go do their thing in the village square. There is a cafe that you can go, you know, have a cup of coffee at. Right. Uh, and yeah, there are German soldiers milling about. But by and large, most of the time, they're not bothering you if you're not bothering them, though they're carrying big machine guns and they're scary. Um, and so the challenge of resistance is you want to hit back, you want to, you know, make it uncomfortable for them, but you know they're going to respond by taking a bunch of hostages and killing a bunch of people. And so the the moral question of how you behave is not actually a simple one. And they uh, and this is debated even among the communists when they, you know, in the previous episode, when they hold the vote about it, you know, they're afraid of the retaliations. And they're also dealing with they're basically an unarmed group or very lightly armed against the Wehrmacht, which is, you know, just overran the French army in three weeks. And so they're really, really aware of being seriously outgunned. And, you know, maybe they can pick off a person or two, but they're going to lose big um, and they know it. And so the question of how you organize violent resistance under those circumstances is a really, like it is a non-obvious question. And while in retrospect, we all valorize the French resistance, and rightly so, if you look at it in a prospective sense of, is this a good idea? It's not really clear that the answer to that you know, and I think the show does a very good job of portraying, you know, from the mayor's perspective. And I want to talk about uh, Danielle Larcher, because over the course of these two episodes, 
his life gets really complicated in a way that I think is worth drilling down on a little bit. But from his perspective, you know, uh, what he calls collaboration, um, which was, of course, the official Vichy policy, um, down to, uh, you know, the level of his brother and their, uh, their, his comrades, you know, figuring out how to, who are contemplating violent resistance, it is, or planning it, it, it is a very difficult question pro, as a prospective matter if that's a good idea or not. Yeah, and I will tell you as I watch the show, um, you know, I, I don't want to say anything about later episodes, but obviously the resistance takes on different flavors over time. And I do I do valorize the resistance. I'm not quite sure, though, that this, this – I, I, I don't know how to evaluate this because this is about poking the bear, right? This is about – and you are you you are going to get people killed by doing this, right? Like either they're going to get killed in the act or there's going to be a retaliation. Um, and one of the things I like about this episode is the way that it sets up their contemplation of killing German officers – and then in the episode, a German officer gets killed somewhere else. And you see how seriously the Germans take that. It's not like, oh, this is just the cost of us being the occupying force and like this happens all the time. It's like, no, no, no. You don't let anybody on your side get killed without, you know, extreme response. So now you know that that your guys, the guys you're on, the, you're, you're Marcel and, and Suzanne, that if these guys do this proactively um, – it's going to cause huge problems for the townspeople. Yes. And of course, remember that this is a Moscow directed policy. Right. And Moscow here is not defending France. Moscow is defending Russia. Right. And the, the, the background here is that the, you know, this is before Stalingrad, right? So this is the part of the war where, the Nazis are just overrunning uh, uh, huge swaths of Soviet territory, and they have not yet gotten bogged down. The Soviet Union is in really, really dire straits. And so what they're trying to do is gin up uh, uh, terrorism against – and uh, terrorism is a, is a complicated word for it because they're, they are contemplating killing German military officers who are – an occupying force. It's not. I don't have a moral problem with that as a, um, uh, as a, uh, uh, you know. Uh, but but they're contemplating ground level resistance of a feudal variety in order to get the Germans to be brutal in France, so as to trigger wider resistance of a type that will tie down the Nazis there and therefore create again a two-front situation or at least make this pacified France as difficult for them as possible. One one f thing they are not considering in that, and, you know, the Soviets were not, you know, great humanitarians, was the people of France, much less the people of Villeneuve. And so, you know, there's a... Um, there's a... Uh, uh, they are very much cannon fodder for the Soviets, even though they don't understand themselves that way. Yeah. And just on the word, both the words terrorism and the words collaboration have sort of vaguely like 
they they believe they're they're acting ter- like they use the word terrorism because they are trying to create terror among the German um, leadership. And then collaboration is meant as a positive. Like we we think of collaborators, right, as as people who were were traitors. But the collaboration not only is it the official policy of Vichy, but it is, you know. They were, they were, they were, it's like they're collaborating together on a project. Like this is, this is how we, Daniel's constantly bringing up the term collaboration in the way that it was used sort of contemporaneously there, which is in this positive way of in service to our collaboration together and our working together, um, not in a, uh, you know, we're helping to uh, engage in this moral, the, the greatest moral, you know, plague in the 20th century. Yeah, I think the word collaboration, and I I have not studied the historical etymology of it in this context, but I think it came over the course of the war to, so it was in fact the official formal policy of Vichy. And when Danielle says, you know, our collaboration, or when the uh, uh, schoolmaster uh, Berriot uh, um toasts to our collaboration, they are actually using it in the sense that the Vichy government made, which is, hey, we have an armistice agreement. Uh, We are not fighting each other anymore. There's an occupation. We're going to work together to make this uh, work effectively. And that was the sense in which they used the word collaboration. Over the course of the war, it came to have a very different, I think, first ironic connotation, which is, oh, yeah, you know, don't trust him. He's he's a collaborator. Um, uh, that was, you know, sort of collaborationism. Uh, but also there were the French fascists who were actively believers in, you know, uh, in making France a part of the German axis, or, you know, at least in perhaps not in a formal sense, but in a, uh, they wanted a fascist France, and they were, they called themselves collaborationists. And over the course of the war, that sense that, uh, that came to be a highly pejorative uh, sense, the Laval, the uh, prime minister of, of Vichy France was executed after the war. Um, and, you know, though that came to be, I think the modern sense of the word collaboration is a, is the adoption of that kind of Gaullist and communist, uh, use of the word collaborator to describe the, the actively pro Vichy, uh, or pro German elements that, that, you know, I think did a little bit more than what Danielle does. Yeah. Um, I will say in this these scenes where they're doing the stakeout, right, it's like Marcel and Suzanne have decided to pantomime being like a lovebird couple uh, so that they can go sort of stake out without being noticed. Which she's really into. Right. Well, so there's this like <laughs> there's this like light comedy to the whole thing um, where, you know, she seems to be sort of pushing this narrative so that they can kind of play it out, even though we find out, which I, I don't know if we knew this before, that it is 
forboden, strictly forbidden for um, <laughs> for comrades, of which she is one of convenience, uh, but for comrades to be in relationships with one another. Um, boy, these communists really want to control, like, every element of your life. Um, well, and they didn't call it totalitarianism for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, geez, you can't even have a relationship. Was, so, so, she, so she takes this sort of great relish in, uh, in Marcel. Marcel, I, I, I love this actor and this character uh, from a – he's, like, hard to read, right? Like, he, he prioritizes the mission and the party above everything. But, like, there's just that hint of him, like, being into it. <laughs> but, like, you can barely – it's barely detectable. It's, it's, you know, it's more detectable in the sense that he doesn't quite fight it. Yeah. And, look, I mean, the – Two of the really great performances in this are the Larcher brothers, both of whom are really magnificent. I I don't know anything about the actors in question, but they're they're just magnificent performances. And Marcel has this beautiful quality of and it helps that we know something now about his father. You know, he's joined this party because he's a renegade. But the party itself is this very authoritarian entity, which, of course, is what he's rebelling against in his father. And so he keeps, um, you know, showing streaks of independence and this renegade quality uh, against the authority figures in the party, which, of course, they interpret to be the influence of Suzanne, who's not really a party member. They call her... uh, 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 They describe her influence as that of individualism, (laughs) by which they mean that she doesn't accept the centralism of the party because she's just a socialist. Um, And so there's a um, but I don't think that's I I think in Danielle's in in Marcel's case, it really is a creature of his, um, you know, the, the party is his rebellion against his father, among other things. I don't mean to question the sincerity of his belief, but it's it's a very convenient uh, uh, rebellion for him uh, socially and in the context of his family. But of course, the party has the same authoritarian tendencies of his father as well. And you can see in these like imperceptible, well, they're perceptible, I guess, because but these barely perceptible way that he blanches. When they try to, you know, rein him in and provide those structures, he is both like acquiescing to it. He like knows it, but he also you can just tell he doesn't want to do it and he hates it. And Suzanne is this uh, is is like it was where he wants to be, um, you know, where, yeah, he's like doing this this thing as part of the political side, but like not entirely beholden to it. Uh, and so he he sort of watches her and the way that she comports herself, and you can tell that he is. It, it, you just you know that he that he that he likes it, and yet he's like in very he's the he's the antithesis of Barry, you know, not Barrio, not uh, throwing himself uh, at her all the time. Let's let's talk about Lucienne um, because this is a harrowing episode from her perspective. It is a half, yeah. Uh, and from the audience's perspective. And from the audience's perspective. Uh, but I I will say um, that there's a moment where uh, Marie shows up. They're bringing Raul into school. Uh, they want to get him into the class. 
and uh, Lucien looks, you know, she's sick from morning sickness. Uh, and when they meet, they've 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 met each other before. They were in the church together, both helping to kind of be uh, nurses uh, in that second episode um, in the church. So they've they've seen each other before. But there's something about when Marie meets Lucien, and I'm just like, oh, thank God. Like, Marie's there. Like, oh, now Lucienne has somebody, like, reasonable to talk to, and she's not left to her own devices. And so um, I'm, I'm, like, glad Marie's there and is going to help her. And she immediately, of course, is, like, on to the fact that this is sick, that, that the Lucienne's sick. She knows exactly why. Like, she's seen this before. And there's this um, – it's a great scene, but there's a scene – where uh, Marie basically takes her back to Morhange's house, so uh, where Marie is living, and you see this the smallness of this community because, of course, that was the principal that Lucienne worked with before she was uh, had to leave because she was Jewish, and uh, they they are Marie is like they're going to perform like a like a backroom abortion in the kitchen. Um, and Dr. or Mrs. Morehange is... With knitting needles. With knitting needles. Um, and one of the things that becomes apparent through the back and forth is that all three, well, both Marie and Mrs. Morehange both say that they've had abortions um, and that have done it. Morehange says that she did it alone by herself. Um, and Marie is able to convince her to let them do it in the kitchen by suggesting, like, wouldn't you have liked it if somebody had been there for you? Uh, when you did this, but what did you make? I mean, I, I was like, is that what people did with the knitting needles? Um, and and is that uh, does this seem plausible to you? It seemed seemed a little. I mean, I don't know what it was like back then, but it seemed a little crazy to me that all three of the the women would have been in a. a I mean, Marie has or Lucien hasn't had one yet, but the other two both have had one and, and had to have done them in that sort of non like without a doctor. So I do not know anything about the history of uh, abortion in France um, in this period. But um, uh, that said, nothing about it struck me as uh, as unbelievable. So Morhange is uh, a late middle-aged unmarried woman uh, uh um now she probably she may have been married at one point we don't know i, I um uh but uh, in fact i think we assume she has cuz she has the the honorific madame um um she is um but she's been around the the she's worked in different places around in 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 the country she's uh an independent woman um and of course marie is married or had been until she killed him married to this troll and we know she's uh been having uh at, had at least one extramarital affair so we don't i i don't think the idea that um uh, that there's uh, a you know a fair bit of sex in Villeneuve is not um, uh, imp- implausible. Uh, these are people who had, after all, just gone through the Roaring Twenties, which was sort of one of the first great uh, sexual revolutions of of you know the twentieth century. Um, 
there is no readily available contraception and abortion was illegal in France, um, at least most of the time. And I believe under Vichy, uh, it was greatly, greatly restricted even from, uh, I mean, it was part of the French rights, um, uh, was very against uh, both for traditional Catholic reasons, but also because the, there was a pathological fear uh, after World War I on the French right uh, of declining birth rates in France, uh, as a, which, which was a function of the, just the number of men killed in World War I. Uh, the French birth rate was quite low. And, um, and this really scared a lot of people on the right uh, and so abortion was thought of as a terrible thing, and as was contraception to the extent that it was available at all um, uh, because of that. So I, I, I do think that, you know, human communities tend to have sex and sex tends to, in the absence of contraception, tends to produce pregnancy and abortion was super, super, super frowned upon legally and socially and religiously. And I, you know, it, it, it definitely happened anyway. And so once, once you say all that, uh, there had to be mechanisms to do it. And this seems to be one that's as plausible to me as, as any other that I could imagine. I guess, I mean, I guess, I guess I sort of thought that there'd be somebody that everybody would know. Cause that's what Kurt, Kurt brings it up. He's like, do you know a person? Um, you know, with there being well, some kind of do they know more Hodge and, I you guess. know, Maurice, and Marie says, Go talk to Madame Morhan. She gives good advice. Wink, wink. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe you're picking up on something I, I kind of uh, didn't. But uh, the 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 Kurt thing. So this is every time um, like abortion comes up as a concept. Uh, I one of the things that's just I think worth noting and very much comes up in this episode is just the cost that women have to bear um, of these relationships. Uh, And, you know, uh, and Kurt, who is by all accounts a pretty nice guy, uh, besides being a Nazi, I guess. Um, But he's a German soldier. He's He's a German soldier. He's a conscript. Right. So he, um, you know, he he, he looks – you know, he kind of says we were careful and asks immediately suggests, uh, you know, asks if she knows anyone, which I presume is a reference uh, to abortion. I will say when it comes to Lucien, you'd think she'd give it like more than a day. Like she has one conversation with Kurt. He gets called away um, and she's like off to have an abortion. Um, and and this is after talking to a priest who tells her all the reasons it would be uh you know horrible in god's eyes she then admits to the priest that it's a german soldier um and uh, you know i just i i guess i'm i'm because of course uh we can talk about what happens to lucienne but but kurt sort of shows up at the end of the episode to be like i want to marry you i love you like we'll figure this out after the war um and like uh now of course at this point she has already She's gone through this whole process. She's she's uh, well, well. I'm just gonna. I'll just I'll just set this up and say say what she does, which is, um, and I remember being horrified by this the first time I watched it. When I saw that it was this episode again, I was like, oh man, this episode is brutal. 
um, because, uh, you know, they get interrupted by Dick Cavern uh, while Morhange and Marie are sort of preparing the kitchen table to perform this knitting needle abortion. Um, and uh, Dick Cavern, and I, I guess abortion, actually, the way he suggested is that they could have been arrested. It was potentially even a capital offense to do this, to your point earlier. So they really are, you know, playing with fire here. And uh, Lucien basically says, forget it. And she leaves. She goes back to um, her room and we see her praying. And then we see that she's got the needles sort of set up and that she's going to do this herself the way Morhange did. And she wakes up in the morning, blood everywhere. But she's pleased by this because she thinks this has worked Um, and she's still alive. And, you know, uh, but of course, as she and, and I will say. You know, because I can, I, I find myself wanting to defend Lucien sometimes. Like, there's something brutally um, resolved about the way that she handles this, right? Like, you just see her, like, staunching the blood and slapping herself in the face and, like, going out to face the day having done this whole thing. And it is really only... Um, when she's kind of down with Barrio and she suddenly, you know, she's losing so much blood that she's passing out. Um, She's literally trying to get through the day as though nothing has happened. She's just going on with it. And it is a remarkable, even though I think all of these decisions were poor, um, there is something about the steeliness of her resolve in all of it that is still kind of remarkable. Yeah, so I think there are a few interesting things about this. The first is the reaction of the various men, uh, which is uniformly dense in very different ways. So first there's Kurt, who, you know, says, oh, you know, we were really careful. Don't you know somebody? And then after... These two attempts at abortions, both of them failed, uh, is like, oh, well, I love you. We'll have the baby and uh, uh, it'll be fine. I'll get sent to Russia, of course, and um, but I'll come back after the war. And it's all with this kind of blithe uh, non-understanding that in the meantime, assuming he doesn't get killed she's going to have to have a baby that will be sort of known to be the baby of a German soldier and live alone in this town. Uh, And he doesn't like seem to have any appreciation of, even if he's right, that he'll come back and they'll get married. He doesn't seem to have any appreciation of what she's going to go through in the meantime. Um, Then there's... uh, um, uh, Berriot, who is actually lovely um, in a in a too involved kind of way. <laughs> and, you know, as is his want, he uh, takes care of her, you know, and he, I guess, does the right thing. He gets her to a doctor. He kind of flamboyantly doesn't judge, but he does you know, make a point of emphasizing, look how good I am to you, you know, even though you've broken my heart and you're, 
you're off whoring with a German soldier. I'm here being the good friend keeping your secret because I really love you. And he, um, you know, and then there's Danielle Larcher, the, who in, is here in his doctor capacity, not his... Oh, and then there's De Caverne, sorry, who is in all other respects a really good guy in in this, but he's morally appalled by the abortion. Uh, and when Marie confronts him about... Um, Hey, we've you know he's and he's hiding that beneath his uh, fear of of consequences, as you point out. And then when Marie looks him in the eye and says, "Hey, we took risks together before," uh, his response is, "Yeah, but that was for a just cause." And he's basically like, "Don't ask me to risk my neck so that this you know this uh, uh, woman can get can get an abortion." Um, and then uh, there's. Danielle, who, you know, understands exactly what happened and basically patches her up and pats her on the head and says, hey, children are the best uh, deal. In a, and he's very nice and friendly about it, but he's, you know, he does not seem to have any understanding that there's you know, a person who we don't really know how old Lucienne is, but she can't be more than 20 or so, you know, uh, and, you know, in extreme distress, um, who's just done something that, you know, is not a suicide attempt, but could easily have, you know, resulted in her death. And he's, you know, just kind of pats her on the head and lets her go as though it were, uh, you know, and I, I do think the burden that the women are carrying, as you describe it, is accentuated by how sort of uniformly dense the men are, all in, in quite different ways, even the ones that we've come to respect in other ways. Yeah, I mean, I think this is... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, look, I, I have been in my life uh, very much kind of I've gone from very much pro-life kind of position on abortion to uh, a I what I guess I would say is a uh, a, a I guess a, a, a more pro-choice uh, position, but not an enthusiastic one. Um, and, and part of what has shifted for me as I grew up was just. The, the disproportionate uh, burden – I mean not only do none of the men – like the thing about – right? So for Marie and for Mrs. Morhange, they can both empathize. They've both been there and they understand not just um, – the, the, they understand not – not just the predicament that she's in personally, but also that emotionally and, – and we do see this, that like suicide seems to be very much on the table for Lucienne um, because that is uh, for her in that moment as good an option potentially as having to either admit um, that this is the baby of a German soldier trying to raise a baby by herself. She's Catholic. She's clearly got a father somewhere that's going to disapprove. Um and uh, 
I don't necessarily fault De Cavern for whatever reason. I sort of, I can actually sort of get behind this position of risks. I, I will take risks for things that are just, and I don't necessarily see this as a just thing. And I, I can sort of with Daniel too. I mean, this is a doctor. He's there to preserve life. Um, that's a, how he sees his role. Um, but she just doesn't have anybody. Uh, and and you're right about Kurt, right? Even though even Kurt, who's being uh you know he he wants to marry her he loves her uh has no concept of like okay so you're gonna get sent far away i don't know where that is and i'm going to be here be pregnant give birth and have no way to explain it to anybody that i'm around like what am i supposed to do and he kind of says like i know it'll be hard for you and it's like hard is that's a at the very top end of hard we're talking about here (laughs) Um, yeah so so i i I don't want to let this map on too closely to contemporary american abortion politics yeah um because i i you know i think you can be at a policy level in today's america pro-life uh or at least mostly pro-life and still understand that in wartime France, if you're a young woman on your own uh, who in a town occupied by the Nazis, like, well, let's, let's suspend some of our usual um, and, you know, this is a very dire situation and we should talk about this separately, but she knows like the level of disapproval that she's going to face is such a big deal that even the children, Gustave and Marceau, uh, and this becomes a big deal in the next episode, who are aware that she's dating a German soldier, know that this is a big, big problem for her and a big secret that she could get herself killed. Um, and, you know, the French did not look kindly on Germans, who, on, on French women who slept with German soldiers. And, um, and so I don't think the, the, the question, are you, are you sort of pro-choice or pro-life in contemporary America, maps really easily onto the question of how Lucienne should behave given her situation in 1941 in in a country where you know they this was criminalized I, you know at the level I, I think at the level like for abortion providers at the level of the death penalty I mean they were they were they didn't play about this sort of thing and so I I just want to stress the limits of of the analogy to contemporary times yeah. Um, well, speaking, so moving on from that, uh, we do have one other relationship we've got to, we've got to at least, um, discuss, which is that, uh, our, our, (laughs) our other bad decision maker, um, Hortense is, uh, heating things up with, um, uh, speaking of people who don't play. Yeah. Um, Heinrich. And there's a there's an interesting conversation that they have uh right at the sort of the end of the episode um where 
he he kind of calls her um, to to come to his office to see some art. They've had some art conversations. Looted impressionist art. Yeah, and he he says Jewish. Uh, she asked where he got him, and he said Jewish art merchants from Bessignan who had to leave suddenly. Uh, and and it, it leads them into this conversation about um, how you know why he's against Jews is is, is sort of because they're Jews um, and and not because they you know he's like this is you know they have the good quality you know good taste in art and whatnot. And she says, "Well, if I were Jewish, would you hold it against me?" And he says, "Certainly." Uh, and in the most in a way that is. Um, I would think most people would find frightening. She seems to find it enticing for some reason. Yeah, she's really into him. Um, And I think she's attracted to all of the things that we find repellent about him, that he's a bit of a sadist. Um, And he's uh, a kind of genteel, sadistic, uh, urbane, uh, menacing guy, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of her husband, who is morally torn and, you know, the weight of the complex moral issues that he deals with are, you know, really weighs on him. Uh, And here's a guy who cheerfully steals art from Jews that he's murdering um, and um, or and he's uh, you know he's a really bad guy and she's just lost her previous really bad guy uh, who's much less bad Marchetti uh, she's developed a taste for you know, bad guys in the context of this bad conflict. Uh, And she becomes more and more unappealing every minute of every episode. Um, I don't really know what more to say about her. I mean, in the subsequent episode, she, you know, steals off twice to to have sex with him. And, um, you know, you... You really, she's develops into a kind of, you know, she starts out this as a sort of sympathetic figure who can't have a baby and really wants uh, uh, to keep Tequiero. Um, but she's, she's evolved into a kind of monster. Um, uh, and, you know, and she's kind of found her, 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 True love, the the SD guy in, in Villeneuve. She, she even, you know, he he gets the report right that this this um uh that the the German soldier or German officer has been killed in in Nantes, uh, which is some other city, and uh, says he's got to step out. And she takes the opportunity to be like, I don't like to be kept waiting, which is her way of kind of sidling up power wise and uh and he goes right for that and then they have a gross kiss uh and uh, you realize how short he is <laughs> i would just like to say uh that 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 um as a short guy i think there's there there's 
many things to hold against Heinrich Müller, but I will not hold his height against him. I'm going to hold it against him. I think, you know, you just leave it to a guy who feels like, Tow- you know. Towering giant that you are, Sarah Longwell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but I don't, I don't think that it, you know, I just think that that guy, you know, I'm not accusing everybody of, of shorter stature of this, but just that there are some men who are not, um, you know, they're, they're, they, the, 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 their small stature causes them to be, you know, be horrible. And, uh, you know, it's, he's got a real like Napoleon complex, this guy. You don't, you don't think he's the Nietzschean blonde beast? <laughs> well, you, you do. I mean, that is, this is the first episode you really realize that and then you've got all these shots of him. He's got perfect bone structure and these blaring blue eyes. So he is in that regard, kind of this like perfect Aryan specimen. Uh, but then when he's just in the makeout scenes, I would just, or like in the later sex scenes, you just like realize that A, he's short and B, he's got a huge bald spot on the top of his head. So I'm just saying he's not like this pristine, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, anyway. And he's very vain and he's a morphine addict. So, and he's a sadistic Nazi. Right. Other than that, he's quite a catch. Yeah. So right, right, right up Hortense's alley. Uh, so, so anyway, so yeah, next episode starts with like a gross sex scene on some maps, uh, in his office. Um, and, uh, but, but right at the end of the, uh, Right at the end of the first episode, you know, you've been following Marcel and Suzanne as they do this stakeout the whole time. And but suddenly all of the villagers uh, who seem to be within just random distance of the town square are being rounded up. Um, and, and nobody seems to know why. And of course, if you're Marcel and Suzanne who are doing something undercover, you think it's because of you. Uh, you think they're after you. Uh, the Yvonne seems to get away. This young, the young communist gets out of there, but everybody else gets rounded up by the soldiers and like is standing in the square and they do the stop frame, bum, 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 uh, with everybody standing in the town square. Um, and so as you get into the second episode, it is clear that they are, this is because this officer has been shot in Nantes and they are rounding everybody up as, as they decide some kind of fate for them. Um, but it is going to be in retaliation. And so you've got, uh, Marcel has been, and Suzanne have been rounded up. You see one of the other communists that they've been dealing with gets brought in he's been kind of looks like he's been roughed up they get to talk to him briefly um it's not they don't know if if it's them that's why they're there but it creates this this scenario where hortense is trying to leave the office of heinrich and on her way out basically sees marcel there she's lied to daniel about her dalliance and where she's going to be she says she's going to be at this cousin's house um and so uh so so they've got to, like, concoct a whole thing for her to get out of there. Um, Marcel and Suzanne get called into Heinrich's office uh, in what is a sort of lengthy, spectacular scene um, in which Heinrich shows off his um, his intelligence bona fides and, and sort of locking them into a story, um, them trying to lie about, uh, especially her. Um, she's got sort of a, a false identity that she's got to work through. Um, and I do actually don't quite understand this. Maybe you could explain uh, why Marcel has a, he's himself and she is a fake identity. Right. She has a fake identity because she was in 
jail for the uh for the uh earlier episode that he took the fall for her right uh and then Gustav gives her away so Suzanne the identity Suzanne is known to be a socialist activist whereas he is you know went to jail for uh uh the flyer incident but then uh, purports to have left the party. Of course, he hasn't. But uh, and so his record is he's also got some protexia because he's the mayor's brother, which, of course, is what gets them off. So she doesn't want to be Suzanne because Suzanne's got a bit of a record on this stuff. So she has this fake ID that has her be from Algeria, um, where, of course, France is the colonial power in Algeria, and at this time actually did not regard Algeria as a colony. It regarded it as, you know, French North Africa. It was part of the French state. And, um, but the record keeping isn't as good, you know, and so the idea, and, and Muller is quite uh, skeptical. He says, it's amazing how many people turn out to be from Algeria these days. Because, you know, <laughs> if you want to fake it, like, I think it's a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, saying you're from the Wild West in, you know, 1870 or something, right? And, uh, and so, but he's going to check up on her when the Wehrmacht officers come in and they're like, why the f*** are you? And of course, this whole conversation takes place in German. In German. So, so we understand it as the audience because it's subtitled, but they don't understand it. And they're like, why are you wasting time with the mayor's brother? You know, I need, I need a bunch of co known communist hostages, not, you know, why are you spending time with this? So Mueller kind of reluctantly lets them go. And they are, of course, two of the highest value people he's got. And he kind of, Mueller is very smart. He kind of suspects this, um, but he um, but he lets them go. And, and uh, that is, you know, once again, they, they kind of get lucky. Yeah. And the, but they're shaken by it. Um, and, and you can, you can really tell how shaken I, I, say, I would be too. Yes. Like, Mueller <laughs> is a scary ass guy. <laughs> yeah, he's scary. And also, I mean, they just come really close to the whole thing being busted. Um, and so, but Suzanne, this is, I'll just say this for Suzanne. Suzanne, uh, her designs on Marcel are overt. Um, they're not quite barrio level, but they're pretty, they're pretty hot. And she, she like even uses, the fact that they are both very like you just get she wants Marcel to come back to her house, even though he's saying protocol says we shouldn't know each other's addresses. We've got to split up, whatever. And she's like, be a gentleman. Walk me back to my house. Uh, and it's like the whole thing is like still a seduction <laughs> prospect for her. Uh, yeah, she's ahead. very appealing, I have to say. Yeah, she's, no, she is. Uh, she, she's she's um, she's an independent mind in a party hierarchy that really disfavors that. She's she's friendly among a group of people who are frickin' austere and like like they are not a good party. What an um, unlikable she, bunch of dudes that is. <laughs> yeah. And and she's quite uh and I also think, you know, I just wanna the French Socialist Party was a very honorable institution. Uh it was not like 
It's not my politics, but there is nothing to hate about the French Socialist Party. They were staunchly anti-fascist. They were democratic. They were like, it's like, and so I look at her and I'm like, here's a woman with a good head on her, her shoulders. She's, uh, she, uh, stands up to the fascists and the communists. She's actually anti-authoritarian. And she wants to have you not come over to her apartment to have a drink. Like, freaking go. You're widowed. You know, like, you've got a kid. Like, this is a good woman. I'm just saying, I, 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 Marcel is being obtuse on this. Suzanne is is a good egg. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I just, I just enjoy, I just enjoyed in both these episodes watching her operate, and uh, and and he is obtuse, and that's part of what makes it sort of fun, um, like because he's kind of aware. He like reminds you of like a fifteen-year-old boy, like the emotional intelligence of a fifteen-year-old boy, or like he kind of knows she likes him, but he's like he's got all this other stuff he's thinking about, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's great. Um, but they get back to her apartment, and the guy is there in the apartment. Uh, who is the cop that she is supposed to be the informant to. And we find out that she has, in fact, seduced this cop uh, as a way of getting let go and that her story has become more complicated, uh, ever more complicated. And once again, she is, she's telling Marcel that she's telling the truth this time. Uh, but I don't know, Ben, do we think she's telling? I know you like her, but do you think she's telling the truth? Um. I think she flirted with the cop. I doubt she's dishing intel to the cop on on the cell. But if she is, she's a much less uh, good person than I uh, hope. But she is uh, certainly convincing the cop she's his agent and date. Um, and... Uh, I hope she's not doing more than that in in the intelligence department. Yeah. Well, while Suzanne is great, uh, we have a competition for the worst uh, woman in Villeneuve, uh, which is uh, between Hortense and uh, Mrs. Schwartz. Uh, what's Mrs. Schwartz's first name again? Do you remember? I don't remember. Janine. Janine. Um, it's Janine. I got it. It's Janine. Sorry. Okay. So I was so going to say Sabine, but... No, but. no, no. And this is like a great... So first of all, I just want to point out that Mr. Schwartz, nowhere to be seen for two episodes. He ends the he ends episode two he, shooting... He, sweep, he sweeps in and tastes the cake twice. Oh, that's right. In this episode. He's, uh, he's, he's alive and well, and he's rid himself of the Aryanization guy, Um uh, dumped his body, and now he wants to taste cake. I don't see, like, what's the problem? This is just the great thing about this show, though, sometimes. It's like, they just didn't need Schwartz for a couple episodes, right? Like, he does this big thing. He's literally the center of the episode, and now we're just, yeah, all he does is taste the cake. But that's cool. Uh, but this cake, the cake uh, tasting situation um, is a one of the ways that this show does the social dynamics through pedestrian activities. Uh, and so all kinds of things are happening at the cake bake-off, the great the great cake bake-off. Uh, one is that a just semi-recovered um, uh, Lucienne is, uh, is a judge. Um, I just want to actually, I, I meant to say this Barrio thing, 
where, you know, Kurt shows up uh, after hearing that Lucienne is sick um, and Berio, they like run into each other. Berio is bringing her home. And Berio does this thing where he both says, hey, Larche, he says to her, hey, Larche thinks I'm the father and I let him think that. Um, and uh, and then also does this weird kind of hanging around thing with her. But he looks, see, this is, I, I, when the first time I watched the show, I had really liked Berio and like disliked Lucienne. And for some reason on the second watching, I am much more in her camp. I think I've already said this. And with him, I was like, bro, she does not need you right now to like, like this is, you're making this all about you and whether and, and like how you, you know, let him think this, whatever. I, and he just seemed, he just seemed too into the idea that he could Barrio pretend is, to be the father. Barrio is just a very simple beast. He believes that Kurt is going to disappear, or get sent to Russia or get killed or just go home when the occupation is over and he'll be right there and then he will he will burst out in that Berio smile and say and now my hour has come and he doesn't deeply care that the baby is not his the baby is uh, she's going to need somebody to take care of her and that baby and he's going to he's going to be right there i mean and like you- so he I'm glad that you're saying this because, like, you can see this, right? Like, it is, it is, Barrio gives you no, there is no doubt where he, his head is going. That he is no, like, he's just, he thinks it's, he's, he's frankly, he's thrilled she's pregnant. He knows what a tough situation this is for her and he is ready to be the guy. And he's going to be there smiling and non, not judging. And he's going to be her, uh, f- you know, her fallback plan night in not so shining army armor i mean <laughs> but I, like, I remember watching it the first he'll time he'll settle for her he'll settle for her on whatever terms he can get her but like i remember watching this the first time and being like relieved because i was like you know what i don't know what's gonna happen with kurt but Barriott's gonna raise this kid if something happens and like that's great if for some reason upon second watching i'm very much like you were the worst Ew. dude just hanging yeah. around like <laughs> exploiting her situation anyway sorry that's a just i wanted to throw that out there but now we're at the cake eating competition and i want to say one of the things about barrio what that reminded me of it is that in all the other scenes he is excellent like he handles raul i love when they bring raul in and he's like come on grumpy and like yells at him you know and is like hard on him the way he is handling uh mrs uh schwartz and um and uh we now see Kremu's wife uh for the first time so so mr schwartz is now in business with Kremu uh through the Aryanization. he's the one who owns the concrete company this is his wife and 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 daughter who's made this cake uh for the competition and i think uh you know barrio just kind of is kind of refereeing uh this whole sort of high society tension quite well Yes. So this is, I think, one of the best sequences of scenes in the uh, in in the show so far, just in terms of the interpersonal dynamics. Um, For one thing, the uh, it it strips, you know, we we know that uh, Janine has a vicious anti-Semitic streak to her from earlier on because of her treatment of Sarah Meyer, uh, the maid. 
But uh, this is the it is really important to her to win this cake competition for reasons that are not entirely clear. Um, but when she realizes that Cremieux, that Madame Cremieux has submitted a cake, uh, and of course she's Jewish, it becomes uh, much more important. And when she loses, and she loses uh, because Gustave does a blind taste test, poor Gustave gets wrapped up in the middle of this thing, um, uh, she cannot contain her rage, and the veneer of civility strips away immediately, and she, you know, accuses Madame Cremieux of of being a trading on the black market for almonds, which of course is true. They all trade on the black market. That's how they get their food. Uh, and she objects to the fact that she was allowed in the competition in the first place because she's an Israelite and this is an official competition and the official policy of Vichy is one of discrimination. Um, and I, I mean, she is really vicious in this scene and the ironically, the person who stands up to her, and this is her first, I think, great moment as a human being in the entire show, is Lucien, who maybe is out of fucks to give because she's, you know, just gone through this horrific experience with the the abortion. But Lucien is like, dude, lady, what gives? Um, and um, and actually gives a a, a pretty impassioned. Uh, speech, her motivations for which are completely opaque at this stage. And then I think here's the, the thing in this about this sequence that really moved me is um, she then takes Marceau home, uh, her son, who is who has very sweetly asked to create a separate cake for Gustave because it's his birthday and he can't afford a cake. And Gustave has agreed to come over after school, but doesn't show up because he's gone to the Cremieux instead, um, uh, not really understanding that this meant a lot to Marceau. And so Marceau is bitterly disappointed that Gustave doesn't show up, and his mother is bitterly disappointed that she lost the cake competition, and particularly that she lost it to a Jew. And she is consoling him by explaining to him the perfidy of Jews. Um, and first of all, I think this is a really interesting story about how anti-Semitism gets transmitted over generations, right? Marceau's experience, bad experience here is not with a Jew. It's that his non-Jewish friend, Gustave, doesn't come over to his house, but it gets explained to him as something to do with Madame Cremieux and her cake and this horrible Lucien woman. Um, and then... And this is the part that I thought is particularly brilliant and particularly relevant to modern times. Um, and I want to bring Tucker Carlson into this conversation. Um, his mother, he then discloses to his mother the deep, dark secret that Lucien has, which is that because they're furious at Lucien because 
she allowed Gustave to be the decider of who won the cake competition. This, you know, young woman who just had a... And, and Marceau tells his mother the great secret that she is dating a German soldier. And that's where the episode ends. But this is exactly what Tucker Carlson is talking about when he talks about great replacement of white people in America, right? So if in a conventional racism, right, people, people hate black people, white people hate black people in a traditional racism, the villain is the race hated, right? In anti-Semitism, it often works in a completely different way. The ultimate villain is the Jew, but the proximate villain is some tool of the Jew. Um, in this case, a seven-year-old kid, Gustav, who's not a Jew, and this woman who is also a devout Catholic and who, uh, uh, who happens to be dating a German soldier. They, in the anti-Semite mind, they are tools of Jews. Madame Cremieux, in exactly the same way that in when Tucker Carlson talks about great, the great replacement, right? The, the great replacement theory, which in American context is usually called white genocide, is the idea that Jews are replacing white people with immigrants, right? It's a way of hating. There's a proximate victim, uh, a proximate enemy, the Latino immigrant, the uh, but there's this idea that the Jews are in the background controlling everything. And this is a micro portrait of that. She is angry that she lost her cake competition. And it's amazing that the stakes are as low as a cake competition. And so she's created out of these two non-Jewish characters who are going to pay a big price for this. Not that I've seen it or know, but they're going to pay a big price for this. But what is she accusing them of, really? She's accusing them of being tools of the Jews. It, so that's an interesting that, – that, that's really interesting. Cause I, I just read it a slightly different way, which is the way that you take in this context a petty grievance, a petty grievance, uh, like losing the cake competition, and – because you are bitter and you are mad, you are able, though, to bring to bear for your anger a kind of – like it's not like you just have a fight about it. You have a kind of power in which you can create for the person who beat you kind of fair and square in this normal civic little ritual an entire, um, an entire infrastructure of hatred with which to punish them over your petty grievance. Like that to me was like, it went from a friendly competition to Janine having the ability and power because of the institutional racism against Jews to create what is now you think like a very frightening uh, future for, for all three, really. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I also think that there's a that there's a very interesting and subtle portrait of the way anti-Semitism works, that the proximate victim of it 
is not always the Jew. Yeah. Right? The the victim in this case may be Madame Cremieux, but will certainly be Gustave, who is not welcome to his friend's house anymore because he's somehow a tool by which the Jews stole her cake competition. Yeah, right. And and that's a that's a portrait of, you know, when Tucker Carlson says, you know, on national on the on the most highly rated television talk show in the country that white people are being replaced. He may not know that he's invoking a tradition, you know, a Yes, he does. A, he, I think he may not know that he's invoking mm-hmm. an old anti-Semitic myth, but he is. Yeah. And I agree with you that he probably does know that. He's not explicitly invoking it, but he's invoked. So who is his proximate victim are these immigrants? But he's doing the exact same thing that Janine is doing in this scene, which is there's a shadowy Jewish cabal in the back that's stealing your birthright as an American you're being rep- that's replacing you with some Jewish woman who, by the way, is extremely beautiful. Um, Madame Cremieux has basically no lines in this or almost none, but she is an exceptionally beautiful woman. And she's there with a beautiful cake um, and a very appealing daughter who's very good to Gustave uh, and a very good interrogator, by the way. Um, but she... Um, uh, she's stealing your birthright. Your birthright as a high society French woman is to win the goddamn cake competition. Right. That's your social status. And this woman is stealing it. And and she's got these tools to steal it. And the tools are non-Jewish idiots who may be seven-year-old kids or maybe teachers uh, who are dumb and dating Jewish students, and you're going to retaliate against them. But in the background is the ultimate enemy. And that's exactly what Tucker Carlson is doing when he talks about replacement theory. He is Janine. Well, with that trenchant observation, uh, I am... I got to say something about Danielle Larche before we sign off. All right. Let's review the bidding on poor Danielle Larcher's life, because things have gotten really complicated for him. He's got to manage a town where the Wehrmacht is taking hostages. He's got to protect his people. He's got this policy of collaboration that he seems to actually believe in, um, although he's really feels morally complicated about it. He can't feed his people, and Vichy is not taking him seriously on his plans to feed people. He's got a wife who is sleeping with all of the worst people in the town, up to and including the chief SD guy. That's, uh, you know, the SS for those who, uh, 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 like, these are the worst people in the world um, ever. Um, he's got a brother who's now running a communist terrorist cell. His father has died. Um, uh, and he's got a Jewish maid. Have I missed anything? No, I mean, you could say he's got a nephew that he doesn't get to see. Uh, yeah, but uh, he's got the, the townspeople that show up at his house when they're not getting food. Uh, no, Daniel, I mean, this is, the, this is, I mean, Daniel's a, 
tremendous character for a lot of reasons. But one is, uh, but one of the the best is that he just uh, he is put upon by everything around him. Like everything complicates things for him. He is, uh, and and most most of what put him at the at the center is we can really. we sort of trust him to take care of all these people, but uh, but but yeah, he is um, absolutely he is a metaphor. Yeah, he's a metaphor <laughs> for France in this period. Right. I, I mean, he, he's a, uh, and it's beautifully, beautifully done. And every episode, it gets more complicated, and uh, and you can see the weight of it on him every day. That's it. That's my observation about Danielle Larche. It's a great one. We'll get to keep exploring that. Okay, long episode today. Uh, Thank you, Ben. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Uh, We will be back next Friday to talk about episodes five and six of season two. And until then, Edith, take us home.